Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Foundation comes first. This is something our team at Gorilla talks often about in the context of a marketing program. But in today's conversation, my guest extrapolates this foundation-first principle to a greater business context. Specifically, he'll tell you why sales and marketing are wasted endeavors if they're not standing on a strong foundation that's comprised of product, culture, systems, process, and infrastructure. Let me introduce him. Bill Kaywert is CEO and CTO of Colorado-based Stored Energy Systems LLC, also known as SENS, an industry-leading supplier of nonstop DC power systems that are an essential part of the nation's critical infrastructure. SENS products provide nonstop power that enable 24-7 operation of the power grid, energy production, data centers, healthcare facilities, the financial system, and other services that sustain modern life. Bill received his AB in history from Dartmouth College and MBA from Boston University. Bill has served on the board of directors of several economic development organizations and the Electrical Generation Systems Association, or EGSA. He's an active member of InfraGuard, a public-private partnership of private industry and the FBI to protect United States critical infrastructures from deliberate attack. Bill co-founded Resilient Utilities Now, a nonprofit working to improve U.S. resilience against long-duration electric system failures. In the past, Bill has served in other roles related to power system resilience including director and chairman of the board for the Foundation for Resilient Societies, a New Hampshire-based nonprofit. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you. I've been meaning to get you on here for a while and glad we are we finally kind of linked up to do this. Well, Bill, you you were talking to me recently about how sales and marketing efforts inside of a manufacturing organization are wasted endeavors if a strong foundation of culture, systems, processes, and infrastructure isn't already in place. And I thought that was such a, an interesting and an important take. And I'd love for you to just kind of unpack that for our audience. What a great question. And it's it's something that, that I'm sure most people have very strong opinions about, and it's you know, no doubt many business books have been written, some of which are very good. I just want to pull out one of these threads to, to discuss. I see one of the most important jobs for any business leader as creating as strong a gravitational pull to target customers as possible. What I mean by this is, you know, gravity is a good analogy because as bodies get closer, the attractive pull increases exponentially. And of course, as gravity increases, it attracts ever more distant bodies into orbit around us. Here's what I mean in a business context. To exert a strong pull, one of the first things we need to do is to choose the right customers. The right customers 
can be kept satisfied and in orbit rather than skipping off elsewhere. Picking the right customers uh, helps the company really to make and then keep its commitments to them. And that's something that all customers value. Picking, of course, the wrong customers means that, oh my gosh, you figure this customer has needs that our organization might not be able to satisfy and that results in a in an unsatisfactory relationship. Just to close on this part, maintaining good customers really needs total alignment of the company's product systems, processes, and people, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. Again, to close this thread out, the company must recognize which customers are a great fit and which are not. And then the leader's job is to enforce the discipline not to do deals with customers that aren't a great fit for the company. Yeah, I, I agree with you fully and have had to deal with that throughout you know, my career as a, a business leader as well. And I think that there's so much that can go wrong and it's easy to take the work that's coming your way or to, you know, kind of keep doing a lot of what you're doing with the same companies as opposed to proactively thinking about who is actually a right fit and why and making a concerted effort to set yourself up for those opportunities, right? Amen. Well, great. Well, Bill, I know that you have led your organization through some major transformations to sort of enable that solid foundation we've been talking about here. Specifically, you told me about your move to lean production systems and also implementation of worst case analysis, engineering design. I want to kind of go deep on both of those, but do you want to start with lean production? Absolutely. Everybody knows that transformations are difficult and they're typically triggered by painful events. So I'll talk a little bit about lean here and the the situation when when I became in, first became involved in in this company around 1990 was that we had relatively small sales and relatively large inventory. And of course, looking at the at the balance sheet of the company, it it quickly became clear that we either need to in order to grow, and we've grown something like 40 fold since then. But it, it, you know, even looking at a tenfold growth in the company, we either needed a huge mountain of cash to boost our inventory, or we had to find a way to turn that inventory much more quickly. Now, that's the financial side. Of course, that, that really governs what a company can do. If you don't have money, it's, it's really difficult. So you have to be smart enough to earn the money to grow. But on the, on the customer relations side, what that really looked like is we had product finished goods on the shelf. But unfortunately, the finished goods were rarely the goods that customers wanted. And so we, like most companies, are are pretty lousy at predicting what exactly a customer wants. And so what Toyota pioneered and Japanese industry in particular pioneered after World War II was a, a production system now popularly known as the Toyota production system. And a couple of the hallmarks of this system were were an avoidance of a lot of computer technology that Western companies had used and very good communication, not only within the factory, but back into the supply chain, which in many cases was located very close to the the final assembly point. The essence of lean is that as a customer buys a final assembly, there are signals that are sent back through the supply chain within the factory and then out to suppliers that trigger resupply of specific components as needed. And, and the, there are negotiations set up with, with the vendors such that the vendors are able 
and have made commitments to replenish those uh, components that are consumed in the manufacturing process very, very quickly. And so we have a, a mechanism where close communication, linkage with suppliers, and pre-existing agreements enables a very high-performance system where we can deliver goods to customers very quickly. We can process them at higher quality than would be uh, possible on more conventional systems. We accelerate cash flow. And so we have a very virtuous uh, system. And the only thing that we sacrifice is waste. In other words, we are eliminating wasted time, wasted motion, wasted uh, materials for this high-performance system. It's really all upside. Now, one of the benefits of being poor is that you really have no other options. And so this lean transformations are typically practiced by companies that are out of options. They have no money and they need to increase their performance. In other words, they're desperate. And so one of the pieces of advice that I had heard early on was that you were wise to do this when you were small, because as you get bigger and you have more cash available, the difficulty of making this transformation, which really affects the entire company, is it you know, grows such that it's just easier to use money to bulk up inventory, but then you really don't achieve the the high velocity and the and the fast uh, response times that the lean system offers. And so, my advice to people who are considering a lean transformation is that think like you're poor and uh, and and do the hard work. It, it's not easy. It took us several years to to finally succeed, but we were able to accelerate our inventory velocity by more than 13 times overall. And in some cases, some of our products inventory turns were turning in an excess of 21 times a year. Now, la last thing I'll say on lean is that it, it depends on a highly functioning supply chain. During the pandemic, uh, we suffered material reductions in performance from many of our suppliers. Uh, it, it was in essence, it was a mess. And, and although things are better now, they're certainly not back up to levels they were from, I would say, 2005 through 2019. And so uh, our performance is somewhat degraded, and that's measured by the amount of inventory we're having to hold. But it certainly is vastly smaller than many of our uh, competitors, which are holding you know, huge amounts of inventory. And I guess one, one comment about holding inventories I would make is that whenever you hold inventory, there is always a problem or potential problem of obsolescence or down-level revisions, which actually makes the manufacturing process more uh, complicated to manage. And so smaller inventories have, have a number of hidden benefits in addition to uh, high velocity and faster cash flow. And, and higher customer satisfaction. There is an overall reduction in overhead to manage the, the factory that is difficult to predict sometimes, but it is a real effect. Well said. You packed a lot in there. I said this a few weeks ago on my podcast, but it's amazing how often TPS or Toyota's you know production system has come up in, in these conversations. Did a whole, whole episode recently about um, productivity, and I think there's just... So much smart stuff, a lot of it common sense baked in, but things that people aren't aren't practicing in a lot of ways. So, Bill, 
You know, the other transformation that you had mentioned to me that has been really important to you at SENS uh, is this idea of worst case analysis engineering. I'd love to hear more about that because that's not a topic we've really talked about here and not one I'm as familiar with. It's a great question. And and I'll tell you, the, the story behind this is that our products have historically are used in critical applications. They need to work. And our customers depend on them working day in, day out, 24-7, 365. I mentioned the need for faster customer service was one of the pain points that our company experienced. And, and we addressed that largely with the lean production system. The other huge pain point that we used to suffer was that uh, we had product failures that were sometimes unexpected. We had so sometimes the, the engineers might say, well, you know, the customer did this or that and they caused the, the product to fail. But there were also other other unexplained product failures. And, and the issue with that is that if a customer that trusts you perceives that you have any sort of reliability or product performance problem, that that trust corrodes the, the basis of, the, of your relationship and it causes customers to look elsewhere. Ideally, we want customers that stay in, you know, to stay on our orbit because they never question that, that they will get their product on time. They never question that the product will work. And they never question that the people behind the product are going to service it when in the rare case it does fail. And that's the ideal case. This is really basic blocking and tackling stuff, but it is amazing how frequently companies overlook the basics of keeping customers. And we need to remember that, I guess my first rule in, in selling successfully and selling more is to not have customers go out the back door as quickly as new ones are coming in the front door. That, of course, increases the cost of sales, but it it also uh, reduces the overall uh, satisfaction of customers. And, of course, in the modern world, bad news travels very, very quickly. And, in fact, in the I remember a study done in, during the Carter administration that showed that good news travels relatively slowly compared to bad. And the, the the number was a happy customer will tell on average three people of their happy experience. An unhappy customer, in contrast, will tell at least 11. So that's a it, it's very important that we keep customers satisfied. So going back to the engineering, what it, what it means is in around 2000, we had some new designs that we did not in our company have the engineering skill to execute. And so in the course of meeting outside consultants and other people, I met a guy from uh, Lockheed Martin who was very influential and he described and, and later helped us to implement an engineering discipline called worst case analysis. The essence of this is that when you have applications that must work, it's really important to understand what's going to cause failure. And, and if we look at any device, whether it's mechanical or electrical, the number one principle to preventing failure is to eliminate the risk of overstress. For an electrical co uh, component, which we deal with primarily, the sources of stress are excessive voltage, excessive current, excessive temperature, and, and some other effects could be uh, temperature that is too low, in other words, below the device's rating, or shock uh, and vibration. And since there are no moving parts in an electronic device, these are the that's the universe of things we need to worry about. 
Well, when you look at any electrical assembly, uh, it typically is made of a circuit board and components that are assembled onto that circuit board and all functioning together. In the case of a power converter, we always have thermal stresses because no, no power converter is 100% efficient. And so thermal stresses are, are a very large component. So, of course, it's obvious we don't want uh, things to overheat. Somewhat more subtle are overvoltage stresses. And I, I recall one example in a sort of conventional AC-DC power supply, there's a device called a boost converter. And this boost converter it, it designs is, is designed to uh, convert AC power from the grid into uh, DC and consume power sinusoidally. In other words, so that where the, the current is consumed uh, uh, in phase and with no distortion, faithful to the, the voltage signal that's, that's applied at the same time. Intuition would tell us that the highest stress operating point for that boost converter would be when it's running at full power at hot temperatures. But in fact, that's not the case. The, and, and the way you find this out, and I'll explain what, what the worst case is in a moment, but the way the worst case analysis works is that we, we design our circuit and then we build a prototype, but we also in parallel design a computer model. And in that computer model, we can run simulations in software. And those simulations enable us to very quickly analyze a lot of different uh, operating scenarios and envelopes so that we can test our, our device uh, before committing to production virtually rather than only depending on a, a hardware prototype. So going back to our, our boost converter, it turns out the model shows that the highest stress operating voltage on one of the MOSFET switches in that boost converter is actually at idle under cold temperatures. And that is completely counterintuitive. The reason for that is that the, the voltage rating of a MOSFET actually drops with temperature. So when it's colder, the maximum voltage that the MOSFET is rated at actually drops below what it would be when it's hot. And then there's another uh, operating mode called hiccup mode when the, the, the unit is unloaded. It doesn't run in a, at a continuous duty cycle, uh, but it, it only occasionally runs to keep the bulk capacitor on the output of the boost converter fully charged, and then it's shut off. And so it will hiccup once, you know, deliver some power to that bulk capacitor, and then it will do nothing for a while, and then it will repeat that cycle. But it turns out that during that hiccup mode, there's quite a high voltage uh, applied across that MOSFET. So by using this computer modeling, along with analysis of every single component in that circuit, we can pretty much retire the risk, the design risk at least, that we're going to overstress any of our electrical components. What that has meant for us was a revolution in the field failure rates experienced by our customers. And once the design is done, the cost, uh, production cost is no higher than it would be for a poorly implemented design. So really the only difference between a great design and an average design is this, this design process, which frankly takes considerably more time and it, you, don't, you, you can't release products as quickly, but it, they result in products that are as, as rugged and bulletproof as is possible to build them. This is a, a, a discipline which we would hope 
uh, all of our suppliers of of anything would engage in. But it's really it's it's generally been the pretty pretty much exclusive realm of military and aerospace uh, suppliers. So when you think about putting a satellite in orbit, there's no possibility of field service for that satellite. The, the power supply has to work. And moreover, it, it is subjected to stresses that most terrestrial-based products are not. For instance, the, the G-load on some, some launch vehicles is it, it has been measured at, at 23 times the force of gravity in terms of vibration. Uh, and then in space, these vehicles are subjected to ionizing radiation and, and very wide temperature swings uh, as they either orbit the planet or or in shadow. Uh, and there's no atmosphere around, of course, to buffer the those temperature swings. And, it, and of course, in in aerospace, uh, it's you know there are power supplies all throughout modern aircraft, and of course, it's not acceptable for things to just stop working mid-flight. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50-plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value. No cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Well, Bill, I appreciate you going into depth on both of those topics. And we talked about those as being kind of a foundation, parts of a foundation that you've got to get right before you can ever really go to market with sales and marketing and expect it to, you know, to do its job. You got to have that foundation right. And so shifting gears a little bit here, I'd, I'd love to kind of get into that topic of growing teams and and in particular you know you guys have made big investments in on the sales and marketing front and in your teams but as your organization has grown and you've started to you know build out bigger teams in different areas of your company i know that growing teams can naturally create tension because you have new staffers coming in with a vision of transformation and meanwhile the company needs to stay true to what's made them who they are uh, so I'd love to just hear your perspective on this dynamic and how to kind of keep everybody in check and working as a team. That's a question that I'm sure a lot of us think about uh, frequently. One of the things probably most companies could get better at is is training and acclimating new staff. It it really does take new staff several months to be to become uh, cognizant of and acclimated to the, the company's existing culture. And I, I want to, you know, and typically there's a six month period where somebody new is on board when they they haven't, so to speak, been you know drinking too much of the company's Kool Aid and are able to bring in 
some new concepts. That's a really important concept. I want to park for just a moment because it's essential that the the people joining our company from outside bring in new uh, new ideas, new concepts, new practices that the the company may might not have yet developed. I do think it's important to to recognize that for change to be attempted before learning what has allowed the company to succeed so far it is a risk that is important to to consider and address so one example is that we believe it's important for new staff to absorb you know what what does what does absorbing the existing culture look like it probably includes shadowing existing line staff for instance if you're in marketing spend some time in front of of customers along with the sales team to really hear firsthand what customers value who they talk about what what problems do they need solving that that seems to be essential blocking and tackling for for really orienting anybody that's that's customer facing when we do this i think we can reduce the risk that new staff defaults to to practices that they might think are important but which instead might be counterproductive. And I don't have any specific examples of that, but if somebody comes in and, and uh, let's say from a consumer goods company where the customer thinks price is the most important uh, to our company and, and we're to really uh, not grasp that reliability, uptime, uh, dependability are the most important criteria for purchase mm-hmm. uh, and make decisions accordingly, there's there's going to be a disconnect. So that that orientation is really important. And and, and this is where I want to get back to the, the that six month period. It, it seems really important that the concepts and ideas that the new staffer has to to make change don't get lost. They get documented, they get discussed, but basically put in a parking lot until we have gone through that that orientation period. That seems to me to be something which is going to materially reduce the risk of, of making ill-advised changes while capturing the ideas, concepts, and other brilliance that, that can be brought in from outside the company, and which is, frankly, essential to renewing a, a company that's been in business for a while. Yeah, I like the way you said that. I think you know what I'm hearing from you is at the core of of what we're talking about here is listening. It's both the the party that you know, it's it's the it's the new employee and it's the leader of the company or whoever's managing them. It's both being open minded and realizing that there are different perspectives here that are, are going to be valuable. And because um, I've I've seen it happen, I've probably been guilty of it from time to time. Where you know <laughs> this is the way we do it, and new employee, we're going to train you, and you're going to do it this way. And then there's been the opposite too, where we brought people in and it's like, okay, slow down there. Like, here's what you don't know and what you haven't seen and what matters to our customers. And um, let's take all this into consideration. So I think a lot of it's about open-mindedness and being willing to listen and learn from each other because there are going to be valuable perspectives coming from both sides. I believe that most of our audience is manufacturing, but it's really important to recognize that manufacturing organizations are are pretty complicated. There are lots of moving parts and the interactions between the moving parts are always complicated and frequently very subtle. And so if if you change one moving part, it it's not often easy to understand how that's going to affect all of the others. Well said. 
Bill, what do you think manufacturing leaders, you know, kind of people in your seat and other organizations can do or enable their teams internally to do to help new employees or team members or partners, you know, to kind of help assimilate them into the company to learn as much as they can as quickly as possible to kind of get them up to speed on what others have been learning over the course of many years? That's a brilliant question. I have two responses. The first one is, See, it will be straightforward. The, the second one is, is I think, is fascinating to me, and I'm still in the process of assimilating it myself. Mm-hmm. I think the first comment I would make would be slow down the drive to become productive after hire. For example, taking our new staff member to various places of work that include manufacturing, uh, the manufacturing floor, customer sites, the engineering lab, or other places. And, and so... There, there have been, you know, years ago I heard I heard a term that it, it sounds trite, but in you know carefully applied, it 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 makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you have to move slowly to go fast. Moving deliberately and correctly at a a measured pace is often the fastest way to achieve a goal. Sometimes you have to run, and you have to run super fast. But having that as a normal course of action can lead to a lot of mistakes and rework. The second comment I'd like to make is is something I came across recently called Martech's Law. And that's a term that was coined by Scott Brinker in 2013. The essence of, of Martech's Law is the following. Technology changes at an exponential rate, while organizations change at a logarithmic rate. In other words, more slowly. This highlights the ever-widening gap between the technological possibilities and what businesses can realistically adopt given their infrastructural and cultural inertia. And along with this particular post, which which I hope you'll share in your your, um, uh, the video segment, is a a chart, which I'll try to describe here. There's an XY axis of time on the X axis and change on the Y axis. The technology curve starts out about at a a 30 degree angle and gets ever steeper in a curve. And then it ends up at about a 55 degree angle upward and to the right. Meanwhile, the pace of organizational change starts out uh, heading up to the right, but a mu- at a much slower rate, and actually slowing down over time. And this starts out at about a roughly the same pace for the first tiny portion of the x-y axis near the near the origin. But then that that rate of change slows down gradually. And really, the only thing, according to this chart, that accelerates change or rapid adaptation is some cataclysmic event where you initially get a very fast organizational change, but then you return to the original slow rate with technology still accelerating away from us. So th- this was intriguing because many of the new ideas that that we come up with, that we see that get brought into the company are technological in nature. A CRM system is a technology. Adopting a CRM system requires a huge amount of organizational change, just like an ERP system. It affects everybody. And so just saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to put a, a new CRM system without addressing the 
the the uh, seismic shift in organizational behavior it is is going to be a challenge. And so there were some suggestions made by Jeff Winter, who who made this original post for how to manage Martech's law. There are five of them. The first was embrace agile. By that, he means use agile methods to quicken decision-making and technology implementation. The second recommendation is to prioritize upskilling. That means investing in regular training to equip employees with the latest technology knowledge. That's something which we need ourselves to get much better at. Forge tech partnerships is the third recommendation. By this, he means align with tech firms to gain, in, gain insights into and help with the latest innovations. His fourth recommendation is to adopt gradually, and that's to opt for phased technology adoption to manage change more effectively. His last recommendation, number five, is to manage change efficiently. His recommendation is to implement strong change management to guide the organization through transition. What I would add to this as, as sort of an overarching concept is to recognize the capacity of your organization for change. There are no doubt change initiatives underway in everybody's organization pretty much at all times. Many times leaders don't really recognize the impact uh, of those changes on our staffs. And we are tempted because we're aggressive to overload the organization with too much change at one time. And so really recognizing how close are we to our capacity to adopt new stuff, developing some, some KPIs to, to indicate where we are. I think, I think those are very important things, certainly for us to, to think about. And then sometimes, and we're in the process of doing this ourselves, saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of evidence to show that we're trying to choke down too much at one time. Let's get better at prioritizing those and the things that are most essential we'll, we'll focus on and the other things we're going to let slip. It just has to be that way because they're, if you push too hard and, and people don't really understand and have the tools to, to implement change, it's not going to work. People are just going to say, "Ah, I can't, I can't do this." They don't do so well, and and you can lose people. E even highly motivated people get burned out, and that's not something that's uh, particularly at, at this time a good idea to do. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said there, and I think right now in the manufacturing sector, in particular, um, this is just more true than ever. I mean, the, the how the exponential rate of advancement with technology across machine analytics and automation and vision systems and AI and machine learning. And there's just so much that it's, I talked to a lot of, between my podcast and running my agency, I talked to a lot of manufacturing business leaders and there's a lot of overwhelm. And I think it causes people to freeze up in some cases and not advance quickly enough, frankly. And in other cases, it's exactly what you're describing. It's we need to be doing this and this and this, and you're you're just completely overwhelming your teams and nothing's getting implemented properly and winds up doing more damage than good in, in some cases. So really like the way you summed that up. I think it's such an important point. And again, more, more true now than ever before. It's important to hang on to good people. And that's yeah. that's really one one of the biggest challenges in. 2023 and probably going forward the next couple of years is 
is making sure that we, you know, we, we have great places to work and, and really focusing on the culture side. Right there with you on that one, for sure. Well, Bill, is there anything I did not ask you about that you'd like to add to this conversation? I can't think of anything now, Joe. I think you you really, your, your questions were very probing and, and thought provoking. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you here today. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Can you tell our audience, Bill, how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about what SENS is doing? SENS is at, uh, you can reach us at our website, and that is SENS, S-E-N-S hyphen USA.com, Stored Energy Systems, LLC. Uh, we are in Longmont, Colorado. If you can't remember our URL or uh, somehow my uh, I, I, was, I was misspeaking with it, but we look forward to hearing from uh, any of you. And my email is billk at sends-usa.com. Feel free to email me if you have questions and would like to engage with me directly. I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome, Bill. Well, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you all. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.